Welcome to the Greenbelt Project, where we bring the Iowa Greenbelt to life. The Greenbelt Project is brought to you by the Ellsworth College Foundation and Time Citizen Communications. This show is sponsored by Iowa Falls State Bank, member FDIC, and Hanson Family Hospital. The guest host is yours truly, Andy Ferguson. Today's guest is owner and publisher of the Time Citizen, Mark Hamilton. Well, Mark, tell me about yourself. Tell me about your family. We came to Iowa Falls in 1948. We, meaning the rest of the family, I was born in 1949. And it wasn't my fault, I can swear to that. <laughs> it, was, it was the week that the old bane burned out at Ellsworth College was the big event when I was born. So Old Main was big hole at, at Ellsworth College, and it took 10 years, and my dad was a big part of that, Carl, raising the money to, to build a new building up there. It took a full 10 years. Uh, we, he was instrumental, uh, they would say. They actually named an auditorium after him there because he used the newspaper aggressively to raise the money for the college. I saw that you did some research that there were Twelve papers around. Every town had a newspaper. Every county had a press like ours, one of these big hot lead presses. They were everywhere. And Ira Nichols produced newspapers for 50 years, I, I'm guessing. But all through the, the first half of the 20th century, he was the guy. And I'm not sure that at one time when we had a, you know, who's the citizen of the century for last century, it was Ira Nichols because he was that predominant in what he did. So that was 1948 when my dad came back. He'd grown up in Glidden, Iowa, and went to Iowa State in journalism and worked as an intern for a while at the time, Citizen. That was a Citizen printing company in those days. And uh, then he went on to Washington, D.C. He couldn't go into the Army because he was seriously allergic to soybeans. Every time the Ralston Purina plant out south the wind blew from the south. He would just fill up, but he could barely breathe. And so the Army wouldn't take him. And so he got this job. He ended up as the assistant to the Secretary of Agriculture in Washington, D.C., back when Franklin Roosevelt was president. And in his time there, they were very instrumental and basically set up the whole Rural Electrification Association. It started what was called the REA and uh, set that up and... Then after the war and after that was done, that's when he said, I want to come back to Iowa and I want to buy it to a newspaper. And so that's what he bought. Ira Nichols wasn't the owner at that time. He had passed on to a couple of others, that Purcell and Tessell. That's when he came back and he wanted to move his whole family, of which he had three kids, and then I became the fourth, back to Iowa Falls and started up shop there in 48. But I was born there. I... Uh, Went to West School. I was the youngest of four kids, the baby of the family. My sister Ann, my brother Blair, my brother Bruce, and me. And we, you know, we grew up around the newspaper there. And my dad had only owned, when he, he bought into the paper in 48, he only bought 51% of the paper from those the Purcells and the, those other people. Ira Nichols had been the newspaper in Iowa Falls for years and years, very strongly opinionated man. And he uh, actually it was interesting because he still 
was in town when my dad took over and they were they were at each other's throats all the time on <laughs> coverage. There used to be a at the high school a vaudeville show that elders put on, that business owners put on, that they'd put on these acts that are would probably not be socially appropriate today, but they are, they were that. And one of the standing jokes was at that time when my dad had got in, got in there was, oh Carl Hamilton must be such a wealthy man. Oh, why do you say that? Well, because he always has Nichols in his hair. Ira Nichols was a big presence there for, I don't know when he, I don't know what year he died, but he overlapped my dad for quite a while there. And back in the old days when the newspaper was produced quite a bit differently than it is today, very differently, it was back in a time when they didn't have computers, they had typewriters, and it was all produced on what was called hot lead. They were hot lead where you had a, a lighter type operator or several who would type in what the stories were and put the letters, individual letters would be formed in out of molten lead and, and then pieced together. And we had a big, big press, but in a, in a pit in the ground there at the uh, office there. And when you made one of these pages, one of the reasons there were a lot more men involved in production there was because all this stuff was so heavy. Once you got a a, a paper put together, it was on a flat lead pallet. And by the time you got it all together, it probably weighed, I'm exaggerating, I was a kid, I don't remember, but one page weighed about as much as a bale of hay, probably 40, 50 pounds. And you had to get this flat piece of metal up and install it in the press from down below. You put it up over your head and lock it in. And so the, the paper was produced in, in hot lead. And, and then every time when the paper was done, you would just melt that lead down again. We had a, a pot there of just boiling lead that was molten. It was just one room where you just heated up all this lead. It was such a production that, that everybody knew what to do and knew what to stay away from. But yeah, you could you could burn yourself pretty badly. So it was just a whole different skill set. Even producing pictures was done a little bit differently, but you had to make a, a single picture in a special machine that was not on lead, but it was on a wooden back that had the, the picture on it. And uh, so you could only put one or two pictures in a paper. And they were all black and white. There was mm. no color in those days. You couldn't produce color. So anyway, that's how it got started. I I grew up, but when I was a kid there, we wouldn't work around the press, but we'd, oh, do errands and sort of have babysitters around there and have help. One of my first jobs was called spotting papers. And I had a an elderly woman who I dearly loved named Carolyn Reynolds. And we load up the papers in bundles in, into a 46 Chevrolet. And we'd drive around, and I was always amazed. It had this old stick shift car, and she'd shift this thing. And it, I never understood how the gear shift worked in that because it was all loose. You know, you put it into first gear, and it would flop down. And then you'd push it up into second gear. But it just was a very strange-looking mechanism for a kid. And we'd deliver the papers all around to everybody who would 
sell single copies. We've delivered places that are long gone now, like the Arling Hotel on the east side was an old main state. was right across from the railroad station back when railroads were making regular runs through there. Actually, I remember speaking of trains, we get on there in East Rocksylvania and we could take the overnight train into Chicago. So we had an all-night trip, and then we'd get it in Chicago. We only did it once that I recall, but but it was a big deal for a little kid. That was the the passenger train situation out of Iowa Falls. It was quite the adventure. And uh, so then back at the newspaper, we would deliver things around to downtown retailers that when you built this ad, you gave them a kind of what would be like a proof of an ad, but it was on cardboard. It was called a mat. So on Saturday mornings, we'd go out at all the advertisers and we'd deliver a mat, which was this cardboard copy of their ad. And I think one of the reasons you all delivered it back to them, because if they wanted to rerun the ad, then you didn't have to make it again. They already had the mat. So they'd say, run this again, and they'd deliver it back to you. So... Those were the early days. And then we all delivered papers. Actually, in, in those days, all the papers in town were delivered by kids, carriers. And uh, we delivered to, we, our carrier corps, delivered to every place in town. And so as children of the publisher, whenever somebody was sick or there was what we called a down route, we'd have to go and deliver our own route and then go deliver the ones that somebody couldn't deliver. So I think probably in my career as a newspaper delivery person, I probably delivered to every household in town. Usually somebody was sick on a really snowy day and you'd have to learn their route and you'd go and you'd slog your way into these people's houses and drop off their paper. But that was what we did as kids. I'm sure you probably ran into some interesting characters along the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, downtown, there was the oldest kid. My sister, Ann, was the oldest, who was the, actually was the homecoming queen of Iowa Falls for in 1959, something like that, 58, 59. But the oldest kid in our family would always get the downtown route, which was easier because you could go into warm places and deliver papers. And there were businesses above the downtown. There were insurance offices. There were doctor's offices where you climb up the stairs and, and deliver papers. And one of the people I remember delivering to, Silver Deer, where Dan Stockdale has his, his office now. I think it was a little one of the buildings to the west of there. He'd go up there, and there was a guy named George Beebe. And he was a music teacher. And so if you were learning music, you'd go up to his, his apartment and he would teach you music. I never learned music there. I I learned my piano from Mrs. Schwinger on Lincoln Avenue. But I always enjoyed going to see, see George. I always liked going to the Princess Cafe because you could get a Green River there. And it was quite a popular stop. We delivered papers on Tuesdays and Thursdays in those days. Now we moved to Wednesdays and Saturdays, but Tuesdays and Thursdays. And actually, interestingly, the post office delivered mail to every household twice a day in those hmm. days. You get a morning delivery and an afternoon delivery. 
And I never realized that until after I was grown and said, you're kidding. <laughs> but they did that. And there was enough mail and enough work that they did that. So that was me growing up. We left Iowa Falls in 1961 as my dad took a job at Iowa State University. So we moved from there. And then Chuck Davis took over uh, for us. And he ran the paper for another 10 years, maybe more. No, maybe more than that. And he was a very good publisher and helped get the library built. He did a lot of civic projects. But then he started going blind and had to sell the paper. And I had been long gone. I'd left Iowa Falls in 1961 and then came back when the paper was for sale. And we bought it back in 1983. That's when I moved back, partly because I had such a good time being a kid at Iowa Falls. It's a great place to be a kid. You know, you could bicycle and you had the freedom of the, basically the freedom of the whole town and your parents didn't worry about you. And so after I had gone up to Alaska and really not been in the newspaper business other than doing those little jobs I did as a kid, I got into the newspaper business in Alaska, worked for a weekly newspaper and then ended up being the marketing director for the Anchorage Daily News. And which was quite the interesting competitive newspaper situation there and was there for seven years. And then we decided that when our kids were old enough and you had to start paying airfare to fly them back to see their, uh, see their grandparents, we said, we want to get back closer to our, our families. And so we bought the, the paper and then we moved back to, to Iowa Falls when my kids were five and two because I like that environment. We wanted to raise my kids in that environment. So we took over, ran it, and bought into it. And they say, oh, it's a family newspaper. Well, yeah, the trouble was that the family bought it twice because my dad had sold it and sold most of it off by the time we got back there. So we rebought it. And we ran it in a, the very difficult times of the 1980s. It was a really a poor economic time to buy a newspaper because the the farm crisis was there. Citizen State Bank was being closed down by the FDIC and they were troubling times and we really scrambled just to get a paper out, get the bills paid, get our payrolls done. It was a difficult time in the 80s, but we came through that. And then in late 80s, we started buying these other things that would diversify the time citizen because I realized I could support my family and put them through through school with just the newspaper. And so we bought a, a company out of bankruptcy called The Lake, which was the very first of sending press releases over telephone lines into typesetting systems. And all of these papers or everybody we sent it to, they didn't even know you could get on the phone and inject something into their system. So we'd have to show them how we'd have to get our computers to talk to their computers. And it was all, we were all just figuring it out from scratch because nobody had ever done it before. And that, the link that we still have today, it's, it's changed over time, but it got to be quite popular. And I still remember when we first wanted to transmit into the Des Moines Register. And there was a time they said, well, I don't know how you get into our fancy typesetting equipment here. And when we finally succeeded, 
we were sending things, in, and I don't know if this will mean much to people who except who lived at the time, but sending this in something called 300 baud, 300 bits per minute, which was really slow. So a, a transmission to the register would take many minutes over the phone. We were running up several thousand dollars in phone bills. And so all that speeded up over time and that advanced. And so we got out of that. You could send a lot more over the Internet. But we came to understand, as everybody was saying, oh, boy, for a town to succeed, you need a a four-lane highway. And that's the only only towns that are going to survive. And so we started realizing that, well, you could use the phone lines and later the Internet as our four-lane highway. We got faster connections in Iowa Falls electronically and started sending those out and getting more and more efficient. And so that's when we got into the lake. And that was the first effort at diversification out of just living off of Main Street, Iowa Falls. 90% of our business when we started was in Washington Avenue and Iowa Falls and, and the mall. But since we've expanded the business, and so that, although that business has stayed much the same, all these other businesses have grown around it, but they were all businesses that had something to do with our skill set. It was uh, like the transmission of press releases. Well, we do about press releases, and so we could do that. So we, we got into all these things that were related to the newspaper business and just kind of pushed the envelope there. Going Now I'm backing up into the 60s. All this hot lead print transferred to something called cold type, which is very much like it is now, only it's more sophisticated. And so then rather than putting the pages of these letters into hot lead, you would shoot a camera shot of it and put the image of the paper on essentially aluminum. It was not quite aluminum, but that onto a sheet. And then you would curl onto, you'd roll it onto the press. And so you'd print it that way, which was much more efficient, much better printing. But it got rid of all the hot lead pretty quickly. And we were one of the first papers in the state to go to cold type. This was before my time. This was clear back in my dad's day. So we developed it. And then at that time, it was produced on a very cumbersome pre-press operation called copy graphics, which would spit out the letters one column at a time and still with the line type operator type of thing. And so... Right when our copy graphic equipment was breaking down was when Macintosh computers came on the scene. And you're right here saying, oh, do I have to reinvest in the copy graphics or do I dare make the jump to Macintosh computers, which most people are selling it to us or say, you can't put a newspaper out on a toy like that, a little Macintosh computer. And, but we did. And, uh, we were some of the very first to convert to computer output. And then we've sort of developed there as, as every new technology has come along, we've embraced it and uh, branched out. Then we've gotten into other publications, that sort of thing, because we had an efficient capability. Also, in the diversification process, uh, KIFG came along. KIFG was, uh, was started in the 60s. And Jack Weitzel was the key in buying that and owning it for years and years. And when it was time for him to sell, we were very interested. And so we bought it. And the thing I particularly liked about it, 
as far as the market was concerned, is it sort of expanded the, the geographic boundaries of the town, where always before, if you were outside the city limits, Iowa Falls, you weren't really being serviced, maybe at all. And, and then we bought Ackley, too. But the fact that KIG, you could be more regional and have us all be a single community in a 20-mile radius. And I think that has really expanded our reach and our presence. And that has been a key to our diversification and, and why that's worked so well. So it made those outside outer towns and country feel part of our community. I was, you know, just wanting to expand the size of our community, and KFG was just a natural to do that. In 1993, after 10 years, my dad had died by that, and paper was big enough, and so I hired somebody to run it, and we took a volunteer for a year. We went to Bulgaria to help right after the fall of the Iron Curtain, and so we didn't even know where Bulgaria was, but we just volunteered to do this and go be an exchange family and build an English language lending library in Varda, Bulgaria. And so we went with the kids. They were in fifth grade and eighth grade at the time and went and lived in Bulgaria and Ukraine for a year. And then we came back and that's what, after that, we came back and expanded the Farm Bureau publication, some of those other things. So just really diversified into more modern stuff and uh, put new presses in. We bought the Folksman. It was in Grundy Center. And we ran it from Grundy Center for a long time. But at the time, we needed a new press. I wasn't very good at running a company in two or three different towns. And so we built a new press there in Iowa Falls on the south side of Iowa Falls, which still today is probably the most modern press in Iowa. Back in the old days when you couldn't put color anywhere, here you could now you can put color on every page because of the type of presses and computers. You used to go through agony to cut color into, say, a, a fairway ad. You know, they wanted a red and black. And somebody cut everything you wanted red on a sheet and take a picture of the red and do it on the black. It was very cumbersome. It took hours to put together a, a fairway or a high B ad. We had super value there at the time, too. As it is now, you could say, I want a color picture. You put it in there, and it produces it and puts it on the page. And so that's why we have all this color in the paper now that we didn't have in the old days. Why are local newspapers so important to towns? Well, it's interesting. It was always a challenge. And I think our diversification has saved us from some of the declines you see in neighboring papers and selling off and becoming shadows of their former selves. We were able to diversify. Back when you started a newspaper, the only thing you did is photography was still a, a new thing. So you'd go and take pictures of every wedding and sell pictures and wedding invitations and all that sort of thing. Well, all that, there were easier ways to do that. So that business kind of dried up. And now I am very committed to just shock now. I've been there for 40 years. What we've been able to accomplish as a city in Iowa Falls these were really grim times in the 80s when the bank closed, and it was difficult. And so using the newspaper to do things like push for a new library, push for the new hospital, push for the building at Ellsworth College, and essentially the newspaper was key in making all that happen. It wouldn't have happened but for a newspaper saying, we have got to do this if we're going to 
prosper as a town. I mean, we were leaders in a lot of those big projects, the college, the library, the hospital. We fought very hard, although the hospital did much of it on their own, but we were editorializing very hard to get a new hospital built, which was not entirely popular because Ellsworth Hospital, which was the hospital where I was born, people said, well, that's good enough. And we're writing these editorials and saying, you know, when this hospital was built, the only way you could get to this hospital was on foot or on horseback. So maybe it's time to change. <laughs> it was a big and expensive fight, and it was it really saved healthcare in Iowa Falls building the new hospital. We were also very, very supportive of the advances in the schools, the regular school and the, and the community college system. So I would say that we were the prime movers behind a lot of that stuff that happened. And uh, we had wonderful local support. Fortunate that we had two locally owned banks, which made a huge difference, and they were supportive. And then we were very fortunate where around Iowa Falls, where the town could have shriveled up, there are a lot of farmers around there who were retiring and were wealthy and very generous and, you know, put money into these projects, too. It helps to be in the middle of the richest farmland in the world. It helps a lot. And uh, so I would say that the newspaper coalesced all that and got people behind those projects and gave the community general purposes that got us through a lot of those slow times that if those hadn't happened, we wouldn't be the town we are. And how do you think uh, newspapers will continue to evolve in the future? Well, I think it's tricky. And I think uh, I think we're leading the charge. I think one of the problems that a lot of newspapers have is just put out the local news. And there are so many other places that people can get news. And so news, general news, has become a cheap commodity except for local news where you're not going to find out from the Internet what's going on at the city council, what's going on at the school, what's going on at the hospital. So we have a unique combination of news that our readers are interested in and need and are important to them. And it keeps the newspaper valuable to to readers and advertisers. So I think that's the trick is to, even as, as the market is changing, you look for ways of, of how you service it in the new world. I mean, it's a lot different. You know, when we started out, there was no internet. And so those people who gravitate toward the internet, well, we're able to give them the news on the internet if that's how they want to do it. But, but it keeps that value there. And I think that's the trick, uh, how particular newspapers are going to thrive. I worry about papers that don't do that. And I, you know, you always say, oh, you're in the newspaper business. Oh, that's, that's a dying business. Well, it's not if you do it right. And so I think we're different in that regard. And I'm quite proud of that, as a matter of fact. I'm really quite proud of the transitions that have taken place and that we've been leaders in that rather than followers. And I think those that were followers, other papers, other towns, were not as aggressive as we were. And I think the newspaper can take some good credit for making Iowa Falls what it is today. It's an accomplishment I'm quite proud of. All right. Well, Mark, I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. 
You have been listening to The Greenville Project. The show is sponsored by Iowa Falls State Bank, member FDIC, and Hanson Family Hospital. The Greenville Project is produced by the Ellsworth College Foundation and Time Citizen Communications. The Greenville Project podcast is available on all streaming services and on timecitizen.com.